You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Never expected to sit, stand, walk, or even possibly live, Mackenzie Cohen, who was born with brittle bone disease, has spent her life defying the odds. At eight years old, she would set out on a successful swimming career. Four years later, she would compete at the London Paralympic Games in 2012. She would then stand atop the podium three times in 2016 in Rio. And now, she's heading to Tokyo for her third Paralympic Games. We talk with her about her life, her career, and her new book, Breaking Free, Shattering Expectations, and Thriving with Ambition in Pursuit of Gold, which tackles some of today's hot topics, including discrimination, mental health, self-care, and body image. Get your copy of Breaking Free today and read it. So, Mackenzie, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. I, I I am excited too. I know that um, we were we were just chatting a little bit before we started officially about how exciting it is to have a book and to um, and to put all of that into into one succinct product. Um, let's let's talk about this new book that you have uh, out called Breaking Free. Uh, first of all, what in the world possessed you to uh, to to launch such an endeavor? You know, it's funny. It actually goes all the way back to when I was a little kid. I had um, this dream board, as my mom and I called it, and it was hanging on my wall. And we would put all my goals, all my dreams, everything that I wanted to accomplish. And on there, I had, you know, pictures of gold medals. And I had, I remember I cut out from this magazine. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. I cut out a, a like uppercase W and an uppercase R. And that was my world record on the board. And and then I also had a picture of a book and I told my mom, you know, one day we go through all these crazy things. Like I want to write a book and I want to tell everybody about our lives. And so that's when it really started when I was little, but more seriously, I uh, remember my very first phone call with my agent, CG of CG Sports Company. I, uh, I told him, he, he asked me, what are all your goals? Like, what would you want to do with your career? What do you want to accomplish? And I very hesitantly towards the end of the call said, <laughs> I would love to write a book one day, but I think it's a long shot. And I'm like, I'm saying all this stuff. And he goes, no, like we're going to make it happen one day. And um, so, you know, it's always been in the back of my head. And in 2018, when I signed with CG, it, it all started to become, you know, possible in a reality. That's fantastic. Now, do you remember what picture or image of a book that you had on your dream board? Was it, was there a specific book that you cut out or used? I literally think, you know, the funniest thing is I had all these magazines and I thought it was the coolest thing to go take like the different shapes and the different colors and everything. And I can't remember what it was. It was a, uh, a list of summer must have reads. And oh. I thought the shape of the book, whatever book it was, <laughs> I'll actually have to go back and look at this one day because I don't even know what I cut out and put on there. But I was like, I'm going to write a book one day. And this is going to be the representation of that on here. And it's just so funny because I don't even remember what it was. 
Well, and and I, I definitely want folks to go out and and buy this book and 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 read it. Um, obviously, in the book or in any book, uh, if, particularly if it's a memoir, it's, it, it talks about your life. Exactly. So I, I thought I, I thought we would kind of walk through some things like that too, mm-hmm. and and maybe I would start by uh, just asking you for maybe folks that aren't familiar uh, with uh, you know brittle bone disease. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about? what that is and what that means to you. Absolutely. So brittle bone disease or the more you know, technical definition of it, osteogenesis imperfecta, which is a he, I remember trying to learn how to say that when I was three, four years old and always came out <laughs> differently each time. Um, but osteogenesis imperfecta basically means that I have um, bones that often break for little to no reason at all because they are very fragile. So in my lifetime, I've probably broken... A, I will always say one of my biggest regrets in my life is not keeping count of all of them, even (laughs) though, you know, you develop such a high pain tolerance, it would have been impossible, but I think I've broken somewhere over a hundred, but for all we know, it could be 200. Like, I'm just Mm -hmm. not sure. Um, so any kind of wrong move or a twist, or obviously when I fall, I could have a really serious fracture. And I was actually, I actually had my first fracture before I was even born. Um, Mm. the umbilical cord actually wrapped around my femur and broke it. Um, and my parents really concerned I'd stop moving. They actually thought they had lost me. Um, and we went in and they said, no, there's a heartbeat. She's still there. But back in that time, they didn't have the technology to detect osteogenesis and perfecta before, you know, you're born. So I was born with a broken leg. Um, they still did not know exactly what was, what was wrong with me at the time. And my mother was burping me and she ended up breaking my arm because she didn't know. And then went back in and said, something's really wrong. We need to do testing. So they took a skin biopsy from me and I still, I have a scar from it on my arm and it's actually really funny. I, I use a lot of humor, but I call it my mutant mark because uh, from this small piece of skin, they were able to tell my parents when I was 19 days old that I had osteogenesis imperfecta. So it's been a uh, very interesting journey. But from there, you know, we started physical therapy when I was six months old. Like we really started getting me active from a really young age. And I think that really helped me up to this point. And obviously being in the water all the time is great, too. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk about water and and the and just the, the, the amounts of the healing power and the, just the power mm-hmm. of water uh, definitely in, in terms of as as an equalizer uh, during during uh, our talk, uh, conversation in a little bit. Uh, and then and I I know I stumble over a lot of the medical terms, so <laughs> I appreciate the the, the fact that uh, you know it took you a while to, to to obviously get that down pat. And how common is how common is it? I believe it's one in it's it's 50 to 70,000 live births and with OI it's a very it's a very interesting disorder because there is a very large spectrum of different types of OI that you can have. I think there's even more. I can't even tell you how many there are today. Like it's mm-hmm. just the research has evolved so much. Uh for me personally I'm between, I'll always like to say I'm a three and a half because I'm between a type three and a type four. So they were never able, I have characteristics of both. So they were never Mm -hmm. able to put me 
and one versus the other. So I'm a three and a half, um, but there are many different types. I would take, I would say from my knowledge, type two is the most severe. And uh, they were real concerned when I was diagnosed at 19 days old that I had type two. Um, obviously we progressed so much in the medical field, but back in the day, a lot of uh, people with type two, unfortunately, didn't didn't live that long. But now we have, you know, great medical technologies and and uh, medicines and all kinds of things for that. But there's a lot of different kinds. Um, personally, I get around using a wheelchair most of the time. I can walk short distances, uh, mm-hmm. but I prefer my chair. I get tired really easily, mm-hmm. and um, that's pretty common for a three or four. And then. You also have type ones on the other end of the spectrum. They tend to break a lot of fingers and hands and they're not as involved in their and the lower part of their body and their legs. So OI can look very different depending on what type that you have. And and I, I think I read uh, in, in, in the, the book or some of the, the work around the book about, you know, that uh, early on, at least there was a, there, there was some possibility that you weren't expected to sit or stand or walk or yeah, yeah. E- even, even possibly live or, and so, um, so I know that your book is often, is about that and about mm-hmm. overcoming uh, odds right. and overcoming obstacles. So was, was that, was that true? And, and was it, mm-hmm. uh, or is that true that, that, that what I heard or what I read and, and uh, how did, how did you and your family overcome that? Yeah, you know, I actually think one of the best parts about writing this book was being able to talk to my family about all these different things, because obviously I I don't know what went on when I was born and most of the time when I was little, I don't remember it. So having the ability to talk to my parents, like, what was that like when I was diagnosed? Like, what happened? Like, what did they tell you? What did you think was going to happen? And literally hearing from my parents when I was 19 days old, when they came in with the results and they started naming off everything that I would never do. You're never going to sit. You're never going to stand. You're never going to walk. You're probably not even going to crawl. And basically delivering them a death sentence Mm -hmm. and what that was like for them. I can't even imagine, you know, I've always appreciated my parents and everything that they've done for me. They've done so much, but this put things into a whole new perspective. How do you deal with someone telling you, you can't do something or your child can't do something. And how do you go about handling that? Do you let them, do you let them be right? Or do you say, no, like we're going to try it and whatever happens happens, but we're not just going to, you know, lay down and give up. So I think writing the book in that respect was one of the most interesting things. And it was sad to me. The sad thing is it doesn't totally surprise me, but the amount of people who told my parents that there was basically no hope and, you know, put her on a shelf and lock the door and throw away the key. She's better off there. It's, it was saddening to me. And when I started writing this book, I really, my goal for any parent of a child who has a disability to pick up this book, read it and have hope. You are not a medical textbook definition of, of a disease or a diagnosis. You just aren't. And I really hope that breaking free can, can show that to people. Indeed. Yes. And so speaking of your parents, so let's, you know, after all of that, after all of the, the, that they heard and from, from probably, you know, doctors and, and just folks out there, uh, what was the reaction when, when you said, I want to try sports. I want to try swimming. <laughs> <laughs> My parents, honestly, I always say this. 
my gold medals are 100% theirs because they, I really, they made this happen. Every crazy thing that I've ever wanted to do, it didn't matter what it was. I would tell them and right away, they're like, okay, how are we going to get there? How can we help you? How do we do this? I will never forget when I was, you know, and I talk about this in the book. This is one of my besides all the gold medals and the world records, this is actually probably my favorite moment in my swimming career was right at the beginning. And yeah, I started out in aqua therapy. I didn't start out on the swim team. And I remember that day I'm I'm the middle child of two brothers. They had already joined the swim team. And I was looking over there. I was like, I don't want to be in this baby pool anymore. I don't want to do this. I can beat them. And telling my mom, I can't imagine what was running through her head at the time, but literally getting out of the water and telling my mom, I want to be over there. And she goes, okay, let's make it happen through the life jacket away. And we never looked back. And that's how it's been with everything I've ever done in my life with my parents. My mom and dad are the most supportive. And let me tell you, brave people I've ever met in my entire mm-hmm. life, the strength that it has taken. And I'm not going to lie there. And I talk about this, that there have been some hard moments and moments mm-hmm. where I'm stubborn and I'm going to do what I want. And sometimes along the way with OI, we paid the price for it. And that's been difficult, but they've always stuck by my side, even in those hard moments. And I think that's what matters the most. And I definitely can tell you, I would not be here today if they wouldn't have supported me in every crazy thing I've ever wanted to do. And I know that you, you know, grew up in like rural mm-hmm. Georgia. I grew up in rural West Virginia, so I know okay. all about rural communities. And, you know and, it, you know it. And and so, did you feel like you had all access to all of the uh, opportunities? You know, growing up in just a rural community. I have to say, growing up in a rural community, it's it was the most. And I feel like I wasn't always appreciative of it until I got a little bit older. But it's like you have your family in this community, but then you have the community who is Mm -hmm. also your family. I love the fact that even today when I go home, I can walk down the street and you see everybody like familiar faces all the time. You go to the grocery store and you see what's her face and what's her face's cousin (laughs) and everyone. I just I love that about it. And, you know. I think my parents provided a really good balance between living in a rural community, but also driving and taking us other places where those opportunities existed because we loved living in that community. We didn't want to leave, but we knew in order to get to the best treatment, to the best hospitals, to, you know, the best care for me, we're going to have to drive to Atlanta. We're going to have to go an hour and a half away or two or three hours. It didn't matter. My parents were always willing to do whatever it took, but also being able to stay in that community Mm -hmm. with such amazing people. And I always get a little bit emotional because when I go out and race, you know, I take my family with me, but I also take my community with me and going on social media and being able to stay in touch with everyone and seeing how supportive everybody is. You know, it doesn't matter if it's, I'm doing things in the water, they're really supportive or, you know, maybe I'm going through a fracture and having a really hard time and just some words of encouragement, but I just, I think it's such an extended family and I'm really grateful for that. And, and I know, speaking of Atlanta, and, and one of the connections I know you made is with Play Sports, which is yes. a member organization of Move United, a great organization. So how did you connect with them? And what was you know that experience like uh, as part of, you know, obviously your early development, uh, but also even just your, your, your training uh, from, I think, when you started at mm-hmm. the age of eight, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. It, very funny story. I actually have to go back to the start because besides the life jacket thing, this is one of my other favorite stories. I was actually, you know, I went from aqua therapy to joining uh, the swim team. So I was competing as an able-bodied age group swimmer. I was in mm-hmm. able body swimming. I didn't even know that the Paralympics existed yet. So I was eight years old and I was at a swim meet. I had just swam the 500 freestyle for the first time. And I thought I killed it. Like I did great. Like this was definitely going to be my thing. Like I beat all the other kids. Life is great. Right. I get out of the water. I'm in my little pink wheelchair, you know, rolling down the deck with my mom. And all of a sudden I see two officials making a beeline straight towards me. And I look up at my mom and I'm like, uh Oh, and then in my head, I'm going, how do you get DQ'd in a 500 freestyle? Because this is usually when they come up and tell you what you did wrong and you're disqualified, but a fuck, like you can't, there's not much you can do, but I guess if it can be done, I probably did it. So I'm thinking they're going to come up and disqualify me. Just learn what you did wrong and go from there. So they come up, I'm, you know, I'm petrified. I'm like shaken. And uh, they came up and they go, they start to introduce themselves. I'm like, okay, they, they don't normally do this. And then they started talking about blaze sports. I'm like, what, what is blaze sports? And they go, well, there's opportunities for you to compete with other athletes with disabilities as part of Paralympics. And you can do that through blaze sports here in Georgia. And I look at them and I'm like, what, what is Paralympics? And so yeah, I went home with my mom. We started Googling blaze sports and I saw all these images of kids and, and wheelchairs and amputees and people just like me with physical differences. And I was like, okay, hold up, wait, like this is the <laughs> coolest thing ever. And then we Google Paralympics and we learn, you know, there's stepping stones to get to the games. And this is, this is how you get here. This is how it starts with blaze. And I looked up at my mom and I said, I'm going to go join Blaze Sports and then I'm going to win a gold medal one day. And like she always does, she's like, okay, let's do it. And um, yeah, I'll never forget going to my first Blaze practice with Fred Lamback. He's been the coach for a really long time. He's actually mm-hmm. also been a national team coach. He's been to several games. His son, Lance Lamback, a good, good friend. He's a gold medalist. He's been to several Paralympic games. And um I'll never forget my first practice of blaze. I came in and he, he was just, he couldn't even form a sentence once he saw me swam. And so I'm thinking in my mind, I'm like, Oh no, like this isn't good. Like he definitely does not want me on this team. Like maybe I need to go back and train and get better. And what I didn't know was when I was getting out of the water and getting dressed, he went out into the lobby and talked to my mom and told me that I was going to be somebody one day that Hmm. I had, I had it and I didn't even know what that meant, but apparently I had it and I was going to be someone and um, it took off from there and blaze afforded me so many amazing opportunities. I started moving through the ranks. I started going to junior nationals and winning. I started going to nationals and they really gave me my start and Mm. an opportunity to go out and be the best and also gave me my nickname, which has stuck with me to this day. From that very first practice, I was walking out. He told me I made the team and he goes, I'll see you later, Big Mac. And to this day, (laughs) still sticks with me and people on the pool that call me Big Mac. That's awesome. That's a great story. I love it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And and clearly, uh, he, he, was right because four years later (laughs) at the age of 12, you make your first Paralympic games, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, he definitely, Fred is, 
honestly, he is one of my dearest friends, but he's also, in my opinion, one of the greatest Paralympic coaches of all time. Like he knows what it takes and he knows how to get you there. And without him and boy sports, I would not be here today. They gave me all the tools and all the training and everything I needed to be able to get to this point. That's awesome. So you make, you make London in 2012, you make Rio in 2016. I think you were on the podium at least three times in Rio, right? Yeah. Yes. I, um, I walked away with three individual golds and also getting to be a part of that silver medal freestyle relay was Mm -hmm. amazing. Like, I feel like looking back on Rio, I remember really specific moments, but it was also just such a blur because all the amazing things that were going on, but Rio was like a dream come true. And so um, you're preparing for your third Paralympic Games in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. What 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 are you looking forward to? I mean, obviously, we're in a still a weird uh, situation with with COVID. So what are you looking forward to and what do you expect will be different maybe as, as a result of the pandemic? Right. I think the interesting things about the games is that every single games is different. And I think people have really been, you know, stressing out, well, you know, how is it going to be different with COVID? Are we going to be able to do this? Are we going to be able to do that? And so I've really tried to keep myself calm and remind myself that between London and Rio, people always ask me also, which one is your favorite? And mm-hmm. I don't think I could ever pick a favorite just because they, they were both so different. And they both had such amazing aspects to each. They were both challenges to each. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think obviously Tokyo is going to come with some unique challenges and it'll look different than it ever has before. But that's also the games. It's always a little bit different. And I think I'm most grateful just for the opportunity to go and compete. A year ago, I feel like we were always going back and forth. Like, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? Watching numbers and just thinking to myself, I don't know if we're going to be able to have a games next year, but I sure would be grateful to get to Tokyo and get my job done. So I think just even having a games is incredible in itself. But I also think going out every single time I get to put those stars and stripes on, on my cap and race for team USA. I just, the feeling, and you know, I, I talk about it and breaking free, but it's hard to articulate and put into words what it means to me to be able to go out there and do that because you're representing something so much bigger than yourself. And when I was a little girl and, and watching all the other Paralympians and the Olympians do it, I always wondered what it would feel like. And every time I go out there, I try to remind myself there is a little girl in a pink wheelchair back in the day who would have given anything to be out here right now. And I really try hard to do it for her. So I think just being able to have the opportunity is a gift and a win in itself. Yeah. And, and just being in the, in the water and, and doing what you do. Oh. Right. And, yes. and, and what is it about the water? What is it about swimming uh, that, that, um, uh, that you enjoy the most? The freedom, honestly, since day one, that first day in aqua therapy, and I, I couldn't put it into words back then. I was a little young. I didn't know what it was, but it was that feeling of total freedom. In the water, I don't have to worry about breaking bones usually, unless I hit the lame rope or something. That's happened a couple of times, a few unfortunate <laughs> accidents. But, you know, just in general, being free and being weightless and being, I almost feel like in my element in the water. It's almost like I was meant to be in the water and not on land, but it's that feeling of total freedom and just joy that has stuck with me 
all these years later. And people sometimes ask me, they're like, you've been doing this for a long time. Do you think you'll ever be done? And I look at them and I'm like, nope, I still feel that freedom and that joy. I don't think I'll ever be done really. That's yeah, very true. I, I, I've never been a competitive swimmer, but I grew up in in water because I was a lifeguard. I was a a swim instructor at a YMCA. So I taught guppies and, and uh, all of, all of those uh, swim classes as a water, uh, as a WSI, a water uh, certified instructor. Um, And so I know a lot about how important the the water is. What um, now, and and I wanted to talk a little bit about your, your journey from, from Georgia, and then I know you mm-hmm. you moved to to Maryland for a while. Yeah. What what brought you to Maryland specifically as, as well? What what was the impetus behind uh, behind moving from Georgia to, to Maryland? Yeah, I actually think my my journey to Maryland started back at the London 2012 games. You know, I was a sophomore in high school when I was at those games, and I remember. When I got back and I was going into my junior year, it was really time to start buckling down and thinking about where I wanted to end up and what I wanted to do with my collegiate career. And, you know, just as swimming was extremely important to me, so were my academics. And I knew Mm -hmm. that I wanted to find a place that would give me every opportunity from every angle. I wanted the academics, but I also wanted a great swimming atmosphere. So when we were at those London 2012 games, one of my teammates, Joe Wise, he, uh, he actually swam for Loyola University, Maryland. And, you know, this smaller school, I think it's got about 5,000 students. I think even less at the time when I started looking at it, but I was talking to Joe and he said, you know, that one of our, like, one of the national team coaches on this trip, Brian Loeffler is the head coach. Right. And I like turned back to him. I was like, Brian's the head coach. And it's so funny because that entire trip, we were in Germany for about three weeks before we went over to London. I was so scared of Brian. I thought he was so (laughs) intimidating and he was coaching like the really, really big wigs on the team. I'd only worked with them for like one day and he came over and I was doing starts and he was watching me do them. And I know he was just horrified. Like he was like, oh, let's try to fix this. Let's do that. And the entire time I just held my breath. I was so scared of him. So, you know, Joe's telling me all about Loyola and I'm like, oh, like that's a little intimidating. But I learned, you know, it's a D1 program and he's a Paralympic swimmer on a D1 program. Like that's pretty insane. So I remember I pulled out my phone, I put it on my college list and I was like, we'll look into that. But I was, wasn't seriously thinking about it. So the fall comes around. I start touring different schools. I thought I was going to end up at University of Georgia, you know, a big state school, uh, lots and lots of students. And obviously I went and looked at a bunch of those schools and I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't like it at all. It just didn't fit me. It felt like I was a fish in this humongous pond or the ocean really. And I didn't think it was going to be somewhere where I was going to thrive. So, and I kept moving down my list. I'm like, Oh, Loyola. And so I went to my mom and I was like, listen, can we take a flight to Baltimore? Like, let's just go look at the campus. Let's see what it's about. We'll meet with Brian. Like, maybe he's not as scary as I think. And so, but to fly to Baltimore and this sounds so cliche. And I know that so many people say this, but the minute we stepped onto the campus, I felt like it was home and I can't really describe what came over me, but I saw myself being at the school and thriving academically. They were incredible. They had a great political science department, which I ended up majoring in political science, a great pre-law program. And after meeting with Brian, really having that one-on-one time with him, 
he told me in that meeting, I am going to get you to where you want to go in 2016. We are going to get you on that podium and we're going to win gold medals. And I was like sold. I was in that office. And I remember my mom and I walked out after the meeting and I was like, yeah, so this is a done deal. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. I never looked back. And in 2014, in August, I started at Loyola. And let me tell you, going to college and and breaking free, I talk about this transition, but going to college with the disorder like osteogenesis and perfecta, 600 miles away from home and your support system, Mm. that is a learning curve and definitely took some, some time to adjust to. Yeah, I think I think that that's a big transition period for. I mean, it's really a big transition for period for any youth, you know, basically to into adulthood. But but I think in our in the disability community, mm-hmm. you know, that that support system, the the things that you know, even like public schools right. uh, might might provide that that colleges you know may not. And so it's mm-hmm. like it's just a big uh, gap that I think that we're we're all trying to to grapple with. And and Absolutely. you know. Obviously, our office is located in Maryland, and and mm-hmm. and, uh, and I live in Maryland, so very yep. biased towards the Maryland school. So I'm glad you found Loyola. <laughs> I know Loyola yes. has produced a number of fantastic swimmers, including yourself. So that's <laughs> Thank uh, you. so that that's fan, that's fantastic. And um, I know that you're you're back in Colorado Springs now. Are you are you um, uh, sticking around in Maryland? Where do you where do you after after this these uh, games? Where do you where do you expect to to probably land land? Well, I miss Baltimore like you would not believe. And, you know, it was a really difficult decision for me to leave Baltimore for a period of time. It was obviously when lockdown started last March. I knew lockdown had started and we still had access to the Loyola pool for a couple of days after. But I, you know, you could feel you knew it was coming. And it was literally only Brian and I training in there. And he would it was really funny. He would get a rolling chair out and sit all the way at the other end of the pool. And then I would be all the way over here, like in lane one swimming. And he'd like yell to me what we were doing um, just to make sure we're keeping our distance. But we were the only ones in there, but I knew in the back of my head, I was like, each time I left, I was like, okay, like this may be it. Like we're in a mm-hmm. shutdown any day now. We're not going to be allowed to come back in here. And that day came and I remember I was sitting in my apartment and I was like, okay, maybe this will only last a week or two or, you know, they were talking two weeks. So right. let's just get through this and then we'll be back in the water. And, you know, as we all know, unfortunately it kept on going. I was like, okay, I can't stay here. I don't have access to anything. And with my OI, my lungs are really compromised. I have a barrel chest and uh, people with OI tend to have a lot of respiratory issues. And I unfortunately have a lot of those. So when I get sick with respiratory infections, it's actually really serious and it can get very bad. So I have to be very careful with that sort of thing. Um, especially I've always been extremely careful during flu season. I really try to keep my distance mm-hmm. from people and do everything I can to prevent getting a respiratory infection. But with COVID, I'm very susceptible to, you know, something really serious potentially happening. I was living in an apartment building with thousands of other people. And I'm thinking to myself, I probably should not be going out that door. I should probably just self-isolate and here away from everyone. But eventually I'm going to have to leave. You have to eat and do other things. So I called my mom up and she brought her Yukon and picked me up. And so I went home to Georgia where I... My parents, I say this again, are saints and they deserve all of the credit in the world. I have been home for about 
three weeks when I went to them and I asked them if I could put a tethered pool in our garage to start training again. And my sweet dad, he literally, he puts his uh, Toyota Highlander in that garage, always has, like that is his thing. He said, you know what, I'll move my car out of the garage and you can have it. And that was the nicest thing ever. So we ordered this tethered pool and um, there's some really funny stories in Breaking Free about this, but we got a crash course 101 and basically running your own aquatic center. Let me tell you, we almost <laughs> flooded the garage. We had to learn how to do like the chemicals, but just being able to train again was really amazing. So I ended up spending about six months at home and in September, I knew that I needed to be back in a pool. I knew I, I needed to be training back in a facility, but there still wasn't much I could do because I am so, um, you know, at risk for serious complications from COVID. So I really had to be careful. And then they opened up an application to come out here to the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center. You know, I've been coming out here for over a decade. I think I spent a summer here back in 2017. And I was like, you know what? I need to get out there. I need the long course. The altitude mm-hmm. would really help. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's been great. It's been great being here. Um, there, It is tough because it is a bubble, um, mm-hmm. which I'm very thankful for, of course. It's safe. Uh, and being fully vaccinated now makes me, you know, obviously feel better, but still taking all precautions. Um but it's been a really good place for me to be safe and to be able to train for these games. But post games, I will be honest with you. I'm really looking forward to, I'll I'll be coming back to Baltimore. I (laughs) still have my apartment in Baltimore. I have not been in it since March of 2020. So I'm a little afraid of what might've happened to it by now, but (laughs) I'll, uh, you know, I'll be back in it this fall and then have to start deciding what I'm going to do as, as we get into 2022, because I'll be starting law school at Rutgers in, in New York. So I'll be, I'll be back in Baltimore. It's like my farewell Baltimore tour. I feel Mm -hmm. like coming up here. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, congratulations on, on starting in law school. That that's really exciting. I was going to, I was going to ask post, uh, post, Tokyo, um, do you have plans at least at this point to con- you know continue and w- with Paris and then maybe even when it comes back to the U.S. and in, in L.A. in 2028? Absolutely, I think. Oh my goodness, the best ending to my swimming career would be to finish it out in LA in 2028 at a home games in the U.S. I could not imagine a better way to go out and. Yeah, I've, I've gotten quite a few questions about, you know, you're starting law school. How are you going to do this? How are you going to juggle it all? And I absolutely want to keep training after these games are over. I was actually talking to my dad the other day and he's like, are you going to take a break after games are over? And then I just like go dead silent. I'm like, yeah, I, I, probably not. And he goes, please just take a week. Like I beg of you, take a week to do something else. Um but, you know, that's just my personality. I want to get back into it and, mm-hmm. and keep going and getting better for the next one. But Paris 2024 and L.A. 2028 are definitely on my radar. And I'm sure it will be a big challenge juggling that with law school. But I'm ready for it. You know, I, I always remind people, I'm like, you know, I went through four years of Division One swimming while juggling, you know, being on the varsity team full time, being on the national team full time mm-hmm. and literally traveling the world and doing this. And there are some 
some good stories of me being on flights, having proctored exams and writing papers, everybody else around me. I was, it actually turned into a national team joke because this one time I was taking an exam during world championships or now studying for an exam at world championships on the pool deck in between mm-hmm. cheering for people. And so it became a big national team joke. And on flights, everyone around me is asleep. Now, Mackenzie's taking a proctored exam with one of the staff members while we're on this 12-hour flight. So, you know, you do what you got to do to get it done, but exactly I'm I'm right. ready to tack I'm ready to tackle it all. And speaking of tackling, I know that in in Breaking Free you tackle some uh, some tough subjects like discrimination and mental health and body image and and self care. Mm-hmm. What uh, you know? Were you were you okay with tackling those issues? Um, were, were those issues difficult uh, to to talk about or, or write about in the book? I really think that this entire process of writing Breaking Free, I wanted to be as real as I possibly could be with people. I think. Sometimes people have a tendency to see things from one side of the story. You know, they see me out there doing all these great things, breaking records and winning medals. Well, that's all great and everything, but the journey to get there isn't always so easy. And I'm a real person. I'm a human being. I I would like to think I'm a superhero and I go out and everything's fine and easy all the time, but it isn't. You know, I face real challenges just like everybody else and having to get through those as a professional athlete in, you know, a lot of times being watched like a hawk. It's it's not easy. So writing about all those difficult experiences, it was actually really self-reflective and it really, I hope it shows people that it's not all sunshine and rainbows. I go through struggles like all of you. And if I can overcome them, you can overcome them too. So I really love the fact that I get to tell my story in a way that I want to tell it and be really real and really raw with people. And I hope that they can, they can relate to that as well. I think it's a, a perfect, you know, summation of of why we're in this space and why we at Move United do what we do. Because you're right. I mean, we often see the the rainbows and the sunshine and yeah. the roses and and all of that, but you know, we we and often skirt around or mm-hmm. don't want to talk about um, the the challenges that we face to get there or or, or the journey, if you will. So. I'm glad that you. I'm glad that um, you took the time and effort to put up the the book together, Breaking Free, because that allows folks to kind of you know understand all of these different components uh, and, and the humanity of of yourself yeah. as an athlete. Right, you're an athlete, absolutely, but, but you're a person as well. So my my last question for you, Mackenzie, is uh, I want to go back to your dream board. Is there anything on that dream board left then that you have not done since you've gotten gold medals, you've gotten world <laughs> records? Now you've got this great book out. Is there anything on that dream board left? Uh, you know, there might be. I, I put this on the dream board and you never know what's going to happen since I got the book out. But I put, there was a little, um, so it was the summer books to read and beside it was the summer movies to watch. And uh-huh. I kid you not, it was like a little like movie video camera thing. So I that out and I put it by the book and now it's kind of like a joke I'm like well I got the book out now so now we just got to decide who's gonna play me in the movie so you never know what's gonna happen that that's true or if it, is it a is it a tv series or is it a documentary or is it a feature film go. you know what it could be any of those things you've got, some, you've got choices 
Exactly. I got to tell CG, we have choices here. We can make moves. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, I definitely hope people will will, will, will buy and read Breaking Free. Uh, Mackenzie, thank you so much for being my guest. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.